0: Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron, principal of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us once again at the intersection of politics, policy, culture, economics, and business. Our topic today, Corporate America and Government Power, where we explore the clash between the private sector, the public sector, and the implications for the business world. Today's discussion is based on a recent political risk brief that we issued in written form titled Corporate America and Government Power. You can find that piece at our website at barronpa.com in the library section. We'd welcome your feedback and comments. Let me introduce my colleagues, Johnny Pfluger, Barron's Chief Strategist, and Jeremy Furchcott, Director at Barron. Welcome both of you.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here again. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here with you and Johnny.
0: Today we're gonna explore, I think one of the most important trends and topics currently in the headlines. It reflects something I would argue, I think all of us would argue much deeper than simply the passing news cycle, but one of the defining aspects of American civilization, one of the super trends in the American system, and that is the shift in power, relative power, between corporate America and government. And we see that erupting in specific ways, but I think it tells us something much broader about the direction of the civilization and about the events that will unfold in in the coming years. I want to first sort of provide the thesis of our discussion today, which is that corporate leaders are encroaching on core areas of government power as understood by politicians. And that perceived encroachment makes corporate leaders competitors to government. And our view is that government is the ultimate monopolist when it comes to control of public sector power and that these perceived encroachments by the private sector have and increasingly are eliciting a backlash where government decision makers seek to reclaim their core authorities. And so that has unleashed a period of confrontation between the public and private sectors that will manifest itself across a number of policy verticals ranging from tax policy to antitrust to other levers that government has to protect its monopoly, which it guards with great zeal. So that's our topic today. I want to begin by just sort of putting things into a little bit of context by what's happened in the shift between the public sector and the private sector and trust, public trust in the public sector versus the private sector. So first, I think I want to just step back and appreciate that although citizens of the United States may express great reservations about big business. If you look at the prominence of big business as measured in brand equity, it tells Uh, something I think quite important. So if we go back to 2007, the number one rated corporation in the area of brand equity was Coca-Cola. And that company had a brand equity that some estimated to be at $43.1 billion. And these numbers are not adjusted for inflation going forward, but I think they gave us an order of magnitude that's important to consider. In 2021, the same rating ranked the number one brand equity company as Apple, probably unsurprising, uh, at a estimated value of $263.4 billion. So that is more than a 6x increase in the brand equity value assigned to the number one company. So I think that tells us that the prominence, the prestige of American brands has risen dramatically Uh, not only I think in the past, let's say 15 years, but I would argue probably the last 20, 25 years. At the same time, trust in government has plummeted. So if you look at the Eisenhower period as measured by Pew, there was public trust in government at about the 73% level, meaning do you trust the government? And in 2020, that number had fallen, again, perhaps unsurprisingly, to 20%. So a dramatic collapse that has been observed for many decades um, you know, in public trust of government at a time when brand equity, again, the, the prominence of individual US companies has skyrocketed. And I think that explains why corporate leaders feel emboldened and are tempted, there are other factors of course, but why they are tempted to encroach on a weakened government, a government that now enjoys far less support, dramatically less support than in the past. In trying to understand the contours and the implications of this kind of public sector, private sector competition, some would say conflict, we think it's useful to consider the precedence. What are similar such instances over history that allow us to glean uh, our own time and how events may play out currently? And to do that, we were fascinated by the example of the British East India Company, which was the super company of its day. It really was, in its own right, as we'll talk about in a moment, a global power, it rose to a level of influence and capability uh, that that, that would be almost unthinkable today, even having the capacity to wage war and conquer territories. If we look at the reaction of the British government to the rising power and effectiveness and influence of the British East India Company, it offers some lessons for today. And to introduce some background uh, on this somewhat obscure topic, I want to turn to Jeremy for for an overview of the history uh, and to bring us forward.
2: The British East India Company was one of the largest companies of the past half millennium or so. The British East India Company was formed in 1600 when Queen Elizabeth I and a group of merchants reached a deal in which the crown, as well as the shareholders of the company would benefit from the East India Company's activities, which over the following two centuries would expand significantly. The company had a really interesting status. It had broad powers to do almost whatever it needed to enrich itself and the Commonwealth. And that included taking on powers that we think of today as government powers. So the company was very successful over the years. accounted for nearly half of all british trade including spices textiles and tea from south asia southeast asia eventually branching out into east asia it had administrative and political powers including being able to command an army levy taxes and perform other types of government functions and throughout the 1600s and 1700s the british east india company was really key to the rise of the british empire in asia the british east india company was not the only instance of the fusion of commerce and government other european powers also had their own commercial ventures for example the dutch east india company in what is today indonesia and there was significant competition between different European powers' commercial interests. It's of particular interest today as we try to understand the trajectory of companies that become larger and larger.
1: I think that the prerogatives that were granted to the companies that Jeremy has described resonate with some of the prerogatives that arguably were granted to the internet companies 20 years ago. These East India companies emerged at a time of a great age of exploration. And you see parallels in the rhetoric around the emergence of the internet economy two decades ago. I think there was an attitude that the internet was an ocean that was to be sort of explored and dominated and profited from. You know by american society and there was some sort of implicit you know granting of authority to to american companies to try and dominate that sphere of activity
0: so johnny you're making i think a really important point which is to say that in the same way that the oceans of the 17th and 18th centuries represented a new commons that was critical for a great power or an aspiring great power to control and to exploit the internet. The United States saw the internet in a similar fashion and equip companies with their, with a, with a, a charter akin to the charter that the British East India company received in December of 1600 uh, to assert American power in this new domain, in this new aspect uh, of the commons.
1: The theme of the internet as the new, global commons, as you put it, Jonathan, I think was reflected in the search for the appropriate term um, to, to apply to the internet. Uh, those of us who remember the second uh, term of President Clinton will recall the use of the phrase information superhighway. That was one term that was that was promulgated to reflect this new reality. Some of us will also recall that there was a lot more usage of the term "World Wide Web." The World Wide Web had not collapsed in people's minds into this one omni category of the internet, encompassing email and web browsing and the cloud. You know, the back end of apps. And I, I think the promulgation of these disparate terms was an attempt to identify and name this phenomenon.
0: And for those who think we might be overstating the British East India Company's power during the period of the the 17th and 18th, 19th centuries, just consider that ultimately, it fielded a 200,000 man fighting force, which was twice the size of the British military of the comparable period. And its annual spending, as we mentioned in our written political risk brief, in Britain was equal to roughly a quarter of the British government's total annual expenditures. So this was by I think any measure, a massive company with incredible capabilities. Now, what makes the British East India Company so relevant to today, and the reason why we think it is a precedent we're studying, is that not only was the British East India Company fantastically successful as a profit-making enterprise, but it dramatically advanced the objectives, the geopolitical objectives of the British government. And it achieved exactly what the charter granted to the company, intended to achieve. And it established Great Britain as a commercial powerhouse uh, in Asia, in the Indian subcontinent, and I think succeeded beyond anyone's wildest dreams when the company was conceived and the charter was issued. Nonetheless, and perhaps because of that very success, British politicians came to resent, bitterly resent the British East India Company. So it wasn't the resentment wasn't the product of any failure. It was the product of success, which led to the very kind of encroachment on public sector powers that some would argue uh, uh, is occurring today. And so, if you look at uh, leading figures uh, in Britain at the time of the British East India Company's dominance, and when the backlash from the politicians erupted, you have figures such as Adam Smith, right, the great uh, free market conservative economist, um, as we think of him today. Uh, was a bitter critic uh, of the British East India Company, as was Edmund Burke, who in many ways is the philosophical patron saint of of many contemporary conservatives. So it wasn't that the British East India Company suffered from its failures, it suffered from its commercial successes and the resulting power and its threat that was posed uh, to to government itself as the central dominant authority. And that threat is is cited in the commentary uh, at the time and was very clear. Now, moreover, there were absolutely excesses uh, of the British East India Company in its conduct in the in the Indian subcontinent, especially in its military campaigns in Bengal, and that fueled the backlash and the resentment. But I think it's hard to argue, and Jeremy, I'd like your thoughts on this, it's hard to argue that uh, those excesses, those abuses, uh, were really the motivating force behind the backlash, because not very long later, the British government conducted the Opium Wars uh, in China, um, so again, if the if the British government was really scandalized by the conduct of the company in its military campaigns and its treatment um, you know, of peoples uh, internationally and in the, in the Indian subcontinent in particular, it's hard to reconcile the the, the, the not much later pursuit uh, of similar interests in the Opium Wars.
2: And it seems like, in fact, the biggest criticism had to do with its economic power. Uh, looking at some of the Some of the criticisms of the British East India Company, Edmund Burke called the company, I quote, a state in the disguise of a merchant. And he also described it as a republic, a commonwealth without a people, the consequence of which is that there are no people to control, to watch, to balance against the power of office. So the criticism against the East India Company was primarily an economic and a political argument about who should exercise control within society. I wanna highlight one particularly interesting criticism of the company from a pamphlet in the 1770s, which states, trade and the sword ought not to be managed by the same people. Barter and exchange is the business of merchants, not fighting of battles and dethroning of princes. And although I think
0: historians will argue regarding the zenith of the company's power, I would say most remarkably in 1757, the British East Indian Company annexed and ruled Bengal and other uh, parts of the Indian subcontinent and really uh, began to have enormous commercial success. And then not that long afterward, in 1773, uh, Parliament, the British Parliament began to c- really constrain and earnest the company. Now, the fascinating part and I think what's relevant for today is that ultimately, when the British Parliament engaged in what we would think of as antitrust enforcement, Uh, and really began to remove the company's state granted monopoly over trade uh, in the Indian subcontinent and uh, bordering areas. That was not sufficient to satisfy British politicians. And they did not stop with constraining the company's power until it was, you know, nationalized and really erased practically from history. So in the case of the British East India Company, antitrust enforcement was the beginning, not the end of government's response to this threat to its own power, to the, the, the company's threat to government power. And ultimately the go- government uh, decision makers were only satisfied by reclaiming that power fully and vanquishing entirely the competitor from the private sector. And so that's not to say that those events will unfold exactly the same way in our own time, but I think it does show the inclination of politicians to respond very forcefully when they perceive competition for core governmental
2: powers. Jonathan, we can draw a direct line between the events of the mid to late 1700s and the antitrust conversation today. The inspiration for the Boston Tea Party was the Tea Act of 1773, which gave a tea monopoly in the colonies to the company. And the Tea Act, of course, was one of the major events that led to the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution, and the Boston Tea Party has been constantly invoked by supporters of stronger antitrust enforcement uh, in the contemporary period. For example, Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, who's one of the key figures in the Senate on antitrust, mentioned this history at a recent hearing. Our founding fathers recognized the dangers of monopoly power. The Boston Tea Party and our fight for independence was partly motivated by a British government granted monopoly on the tea trade.
0: Jeremy's comment brings us forward uh, to our own time, which I think creates an important opportunity to explore the current eroding relationship between corporate America and the public sector.
1: We have seen recently clear indications of fraying ties between political elites in the corporate sector, I think the most notable example of this trend that we've seen recently was a statement by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell in April when he declared that, quote, parts of the private sector keep dabbling and behaving like a woke parallel government. Corporations will invite serious consequences if they become a vehicle for far left mobs to hijack our country from outside the constitutional order. Businesses must not use economic blackmail to spread disinformation and push bad ideas that citizens reject at the ballot box, close quote. And then I believe the next day, Minority Leader McConnell called on uh, corporate America to... Stay out of politics. It's not what you're designed for. It would have been unfathomable even just a few years ago for Senator McConnell to... uh, make comments such as these. Senator McConnell's view was echoed by Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida.
2: By their own admission, social media companies view themselves as a new public square and are happy to market themselves as platforms of global, regional, and local connectivity. And I'm not interested in handing over the keys to the public square to a bunch of companies whose economic interests are not aligned with the public interest.
1: The quote, from Governor DeSantis shows just how vastly Republicans have shifted on economic policy vis-a-vis corporations. And at the same time, as indicated by the statement by Senator Klobuchar, many of the champions of antitrust reform on the left have really consolidated around this view of big tech in particular, corporate America more broadly as embodying some of the the traits of the East India Company. One of the individuals we've highlighted on this podcast previously as a major influencer on economic policy debates is Matt Stoller of the American Economic Liberties Project. And in his book, Goliath, which was published, I think, a couple of years ago already, he applied this parallel of the East India Company to Questions of monopoly in society today. So on the right, we see scrutiny of corporations for veering too far to the left. And on the left, we see scrutiny of corporations for exercising centralized power that produces all sorts of harms on society.
0: For a longer and more detailed treatment of the reasons and nature of corporate America's move to the left, I commend our political risk brief titled The Political Isolation of Corporate America, also on our website, which really details the causes of shifts in political ideology within C-suites, within companies, um, and how that has produced various reactions uh, on the left and the right. But suffice it to say that 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 drift has occurred and that it has consequences. And the most important one that we would highlight here is how it places corporate leaders in competition with government. And as we try to understand political dynamics and political outcomes, we we every day ask ourselves, what is the competition that is occurring? Who are the parties to that competition? And what are they really competing for? And so I think the British East India Company, as we've discussed, gives us that window that really provides a broader vista that I think is underappreciated. Right, it's very common to look at the issue that's being contested, whether that's voting, r- voting processes, or speech, or other very important matters. But the broader trend and the nature of the competition is is overlooked.
1: And I, I think, Jonathan, that the criticism that Senator McConnell uncharacteristically leveled at corporate America is a reflection of the right-of-center conservative Republican view of corporations as Arrogating to themselves the authorities that come with electoral victory. I think his view, uh, reflected in that statement, is that Republicans more or less have electoral majorities in, in much of the country, and left of center corporations are coming in and undermining those electoral victories. On the left, I think the view of many including in the hipster antitrust community is that the corporate sector has through all sorts of processes, including regulatory capture, have undermined the enforcement that regulators are supposed to exercise their criticism of corporations, the criticism of corporate power on the left is that these companies have arrogated to themselves, the prerogatives that regulators really should have in terms of enforcing fairness in particular markets. And they've really made the regulators, by virtue of lobbying and, and other actions, toothless.
0: And Johnny and Jeremy, I think what the experience of the British East India Company suggests is that although politicians of a certain faction might applaud a given intervention by a large company or another, ultimately factions unite to protect the core powers of government. So our sense going forward is that there will be this left-right coalition that will join together in different, sometimes clumsy, uh, unpredictable ways to reclaim power from the private sector and restore it to the public sector. So what does this mean specifically? What are lessons for business leaders, lessons for decision makers, lessons for those who are allocating capital, lessons for those who are trying to navigate the political system? I think, I think there's several. Uh, the first is, what we call live by the government, die by the government. And for those enterprises that are increasingly enmeshed in the public sector, in policymaking-like functions, where those enterprises depend on government as a strategic asset or as a strategic component of their business model, that sets up a very serious liability.
1: We've seen repeatedly scenarios where companies depend on particular regulatory lacunae or programs from an executive agency those instances of government policy making are just as likely to be used to bring scrutiny to bear on a on a company as an antitrust case from the department of justice i think the mistake that many people make is seeing what's occurring on antitrust and saying well in our particular industry our particular company is not facing defined antitrust risk. But if you go and look at, for example, the nomination hearing before the Senate commerce committee of FTC commissioner, Lena Kahn, she agreed with ranking member Senator Roger Wicker Republican of Mississippi that antitrust is not the be all and end all to bring concentrated corporate power under control. She agreed with Senator Wicker's citation of a recent concurrence by Justice Clarence Thomas calling for social media companies to be brought under common carrier regulation. And to us, that is an indication that antitrust, narrowly defined, technically defined, legally defined, is just the first phase of a process that is likely to look similar to how the British government brought the East India Company under its control.
0: And I think anybody who's spent more than five minutes thinking about or studying government procurement, and, and we have, uh, realizes uh, quite clearly that the US government is the nation's biggest customer. And government procurement is an increasingly important part of business strategy and, and revenue. And so government has Incredible levers at its disposal beyond legislative and regulatory levers uh, to to force change and to alter the landscape. Johnny, so you you referenced this inclination to go beyond antitrust. I talked earlier about an antitrust in the in the precedent of the British East India Company is only the beginning, and I think that really uh, raises an important topic, which is uh, the consumer welfare standard. And so our second uh, insight would be that low prices no longer shield America's largest enterprises, right? So there was a 30, 40 year period where if a company was engaging in activity that resulted in lower prices to consumers, uh, everything was good, right? Policymakers tended to defer to that company and to constrain interventions uh, designed to explore antitrust and other competition issues. And that era, as you noted, Johnny, has really come to a close. We don't know precisely what the new era holds, but it, we but it's clear that it'll be very different from the Robert Bork defined era uh, of the, let's call it 1980s until uh, only a few years ago.
1: Jonathan, I think a truly underappreciated facet of the consumer welfare standard debate is the historical context in which the Borkian paradigm of consumer welfare arose. He was writing... In the period of stagflation, in the period when inflation was through the roof, when Americans were paying more and more at the gas pump because of an increasing scarcity of domestic oil production and the Arab OPEC oil embargo of the 1970s. And I think there was a sense that prices really mattered in terms of consumer well-being in that inflationary environment. Now, some people are saying, at least transitorily, we're going to be having some inflation in the next uh, period of time. Uh, regardless of that, I think in concerns about inflation have not penetrated the consciousness of policymakers today, right now, such that they would arrest the, the trends we're seeing in terms of a revision of the consumer welfare standard. But I think it's important, and one of the things that conservative defenders of the consumer welfare standard largely haven't acknowledged is that it came of age in a time and place. And that time and place has passed, and Republican economic policy has shifted in a more nationalist and populist direction. And it was, I think, inevitable that antitrust would be a a lagging indicator of that shift.
0: Jeremy, what should we expect in terms of policymaking to address this phenomenon?
2: I think we should expect policymakers to be tinkering around and trying to figure out what can actually be done. I think that there's going to be a certain amount of experimentation based on new ideas, and there's probably also going to be a fair amount of um, exploration into how these kinds of problems were dealt with historically. In summary, Jonathan, we should expect to see a lot of experimentation, and some of it will end up going a long way. Other efforts will probably not last particularly long, but we're probably going to see a lot of intellectual curiosity and a lot of uh, policy volatility over the next several years. It's interesting to see that a lot of this discussion does not slice clearly along left-right lines, and we're seeing a lot of joint proposals from unconventional allies politically. One particular highlight is Senator Holly of Missouri, who is channeling a view increasingly popular on the right and on the left. Big banks, big tech, big multinational corporations. These are the aristocrats of our age. They've effectively run this country for decades and their legacy is national division and national decline. And we've seen very similar comments from Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, who has written, That for the past 30 years, we have put the American stamp of approval on giant corporations, even as they have ignored the interests of all but a tiny slice of Americans. We should insist on a new deal. So we should expect to see a lot of creativity, a lot of bipartisan or cross-partisan alliances in new areas.
0: Jeremy, to your point, let me suggest a couple specific possibilities. One would be a graduated corporate Income tax, so similar to what we have in the individual income tax, gradations of, of tax levels uh, that would be designed to constrain uh, bigger, you know, more more profitable companies. Another area would be to take certain areas of economic activity that are currently uh, not heavily regulated and to turn them into utilities, right? To constrain them in such a way um, that their profits are capped uh, and that they're subject to very stringent government oversight. I think uh, the model would be utilities, and you can see this happening both, of course, in the uh, tech sector uh, as well as as healthcare, I think, are, are options there.
1: Jonathan, I would say as well that in the past, the argument between liberals and conservatives was over an appropriate marginal tax rate. The argument is shifting toward concepts like wealth tax and taxing the untaxed assets of retirement accounts. The latter's already been discussed many times during discussions over tax reform, but a wealth tax was thought of as a total impossibility. It was laughed at as something that the Turkish government did controversially in World War II, but no other credible regime would ever impose. We had an event a number of years ago, Jonathan, where you forecast that a wealth tax would become the subject of debate among Democrats and the audience at this particular event dismissed what you said, found it totally improbable. And within a matter of weeks, both and might have even been days, both Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts and Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont had, as part of their presidential campaigns, offered wealth tax proposals. I think that is an indication of what we are likely to see on the side of addressing some of the inequities related to corporate compensation. My understanding is in their evocation of a wealth tax so far, they focused on personal income, i.e. confiscating or taxing the personal wealth of the wealthy. But I can also see a wealth tax concept being applied to corporate balance sheets. Why not take the tens of billions of dollars that tech companies have parked in bank accounts overseas and uh, apply it to rebuilding America's infrastructure? That, I think, would be seen as very politically uh, popular among both Democrats and Republicans. So I think we're going to see a lot more of the politics of what I'll term somewhat unfairly confiscation.
0: And similarly, Johnny, I, I, I fully expect a much more intense debate around taxing large endowments. And I think whether those are private philanthropies uh, or they happen to be associated with universities, I think that charities that have been amassed uh, with great corporate fortunes or at elite institutions, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult uh, to justify uh, you know, not for-profit treatment uh, of those of those assets. And so I think that, I think again, the taxing of endowments, is going to be much more possible uh, now and in the coming years than it was previously.
2: It's also worth mentioning data taxes that have been floated several times over the past few years. And recently in May 2021, the topic has come up yet again with proposals uh, from the New York state Senate actually to tax companies based on annual receipts earned from the Data of New York residents. So it's not clear where that specific proposal is going to go, but it does reflect deep concern among many policymakers that the largest, many of the largest companies are tech companies who have been able to grow to considerable size by operating in sectors of the economy that are less tightly regulated than some of the traditional um, industrial giants of the early 20th century, for example. And finally, Jeremy,
0: I'll, I'll just note that I fully expect policymakers to tweak the tax code to reward companies that employ large numbers of people, as well as companies that engage in uh, large levels of capital expenditures. I think we're going to we're going to move to a world where uh, people's tax burden will be mitigated to the extent that they're big employers and that they're buying lots of stuff. Uh, lots of sort of, you know, durables, especially those manufactured in the United States. And I think we're headed to a world where we're gonna have a very different set of incentives. There, there are some of those that exist today, of course, and there's all kinds of favorable treatment to, to uh, you know, having employees and to uh, having capital expenditures and in the, actually the Trump um, tax reform, uh, immediate expensing was a was a prominent feature. I think we're gonna see a lot more of that going forward. As we prepare to conclude today's discussion, I do think it's worth contemplating the very serious threat that this confrontation could pose to American growth, to the economy, to innovation, and really to the future stability of the country. So much of the coming decade and beyond depends upon the United States achieving robust growth level that will allow it to fund greater and greater public needs, especially in healthcare, social services, defense, and other areas. And it is very possible this confrontation that we've described today between the corporate sector and the public sector could have very negative consequences for growth rates, for innovation, uh, for exactly the kinds of things that that the nation needs to be successful going forward, especially in light of the great power competition with China. So we should not underestimate the importance uh, of this question and the magnitude of the possible consequences business leaders and policymakers should appreciate that if this confrontation gets out of control if there is a struggle that results in corporations increasingly trying to shape policy outcomes to avert po- uh, policy making they do not prefer and policymakers retaliate with increasing efforts to constrain corporations that that could very easily destabilize a number of key aspects of America's competitive edge And so this topic, I don't think is to be taken lightly. I don't think it should be underestimated. In many ways, it may be the most consequential and least appreciated liability in the American system today.
2: Jonathan, you referenced China. It's important to note that the nature of US competition with China is such that the private sector plays an incredibly important role. The Chinese government is really interlinked with its private sector and China has been using its economic leverage to try to achieve its competitive objectives in various parts of the world. And so for the future of U.S. competition with China, the role of the U.S. private sector is going to be very important. And the relationship between corporate America and U.S. government is going to be very important. Several major U.S. companies have already made this argument publicly. They have appeal to policymakers saying that actions against major U.S. corporations are really effectively going to benefit their Chinese competitors. And there's some truth to that over the coming years. I think one of the big questions is going to be how the U.S. reorients its approach to competition away from a Cold War model in which there was very little commercial activity between the competitors to this new model of competition between the United States and China, in which the private sector and especially large corporations play such a central role.
1: I think one of the ironies that we are likely to confront in this era of deteriorating corporate government relations is that a larger percentage of Americans are investors in corporations through their retirement accounts, through increasingly index funds. And it remains to be seen what the interplay, what the feedback loop is going to be between the political dynamics we've described and the household effects, the wealth effects that rank and file Americans experience and how those two dynamics are going to interact with each other.
0: As we conclude, I guess I would pose the following two questions. To business leaders, I would ask, what are the proper constraints of corporate activity and what kind of self-restraint should be exercised as a matter of prudence uh, when thinking about political activity? Are there appropriate natural constraints, separate from what government might impose, that companies should respect as they recognize the distinction between private sector capabilities and public sector responsibilities. And to policymakers, uh, I I would ask, what are the unintended consequences of greater and greater intervention in the private sector as part of attempts to reclaim power? How might those interventions spin out of control uh, and produce results that really do erode America's competitive position? Uh, and again, to both parties, you have to wonder, um, have, have has each, and I think particularly private sector leaders, thought through the consequences of this conflict uh, where you have private interests challenging a sovereign and the sovereign responding? So there's much to think about there. I think today's been a terrific discussion. I want to thank uh, you, Johnny and Jeremy, for for a great conversation. Thank you both. And I want to make sure to recognize Diana Engelman, who makes these podcasts possible, Uh, Daniel Weinrich, as well as Robert Villafiori, who provide terrific research that support our conversation and our intrepid producer, Noah. Thank you all for joining us. My name is Jonathan Barron, and this has been The Political Risk Brief.